Public Square's usual format is as follows. We ask a distinguished guest speaker to talk for about 25 to 30 minutes and uh, lead a solution-focused conversation that lasts about an hour and is followed by a reception. 45 community members from various walks of life are invited to participate in each seminar, several of whom are closely involved with the topic under discussion. Today, they include, and I'll ask you to hold any applause, first, State Senator Hannabeth Jackson, a longtime leader in the fight to combat sexual harassment in the workplace, and most recently, the author of two landmark pieces of legislation that Governor Jerry Brown signed into law on October 1. Dr. Anna Everett, who is uh, to my left, chair of the Santa Barbara County Commission for Women and professor of film, television, and new media studies at UCSB. Uh, I don't know if she's in the audience yet, but Jan Campbell, are you here? Okay. We had hoped to see Jan, who is the Executive Director of Domestic Violence Solutions for Santa Barbara County. And in addition, to my left, Charlotte Gulletmore, board-certified adult health care practitioner who serves on the Santa Barbara County Commission for Women, the board of directors of the Santa Barbara Women's Political Committee. And it's now my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Jocelyn Fry is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, focusing on women's issues including work-family balance, pay equity, and women's leadership. She served for four years as deputy assistant to former President Barack Obama and director of policy and special projects for former First Lady Michelle Obama. Previously, she was the general counsel at the National Partnership for Women and Families. In October <laughs> of this year, the Ms. Foundation for Women announced that Jocelyn would serve as the new board chair, explaining that, in their words, she has dedicated her life's work to fighting on behalf of women, girls, and families in the most undeserved and unrepresented communities, is not afraid to speak truth to power, and has consistently been on the frontiers of the fight to advance the rights of women. Please join me in welcoming Jocelyn Fry. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Leonard. That was a wonderful introduction. You're going to come with me everywhere I speak now. Uh, that, was, that was lovely. And thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Uh, thank you for your hospitality. I'm particularly excited to hear from all of you, um, particularly State Senator Jackson, um, whose uh, work uh, not only around sexual harassment, but also equal pay is not simply significant in the state, but really has made California um, a leader and trendsetter across the country. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, and I'm going to um, I'm going to put my watch down. I'm notoriously I like talking, um, so sometimes time limits are just a suggestion and not actually something I adhere to. So I'm going to try my best to do so. Um, and I will say that um, I'm going to, uh, as Leonard said, uh, say a, a bunch of stuff uh, uh, for about 25, 30 minutes. Um, and then hopefully we'll engage um, all of you in a conversation around uh, solutions around sexual harassment. So uh, the first thing I want to say is, you know, on the one hand, this is a topic that needs no introduction. 
Um, uh, we have spent the, a better part of a year, if not more, talking about sexual harassment. Um, it is uh, a controversy that has engaged people who are famous and people who are not so famous. And uh, it is uh, taken hold in every part of the country um, and has mesmerized the media. And we have you know, often heard ad nauseum every excruciating detail of every incident, um, um, often involving celebrities or notables about um, uh, what happened around different um, manifestations of sexual misconduct. Um, but my goal this evening is really not to focus on the fates of famous people. Um, it's really rather instead to, to talk a little bit about the stories and experiences of people who, that often never get focused on. Um, the, whether they're women or men who are working in jobs that people perceive of as invisible, people who are often positioned in the lowest rung of uh, the power ladder, um, people who are working day to day in jobs to make ends meet, um, and are dealing with economic instability and for whom the loss of a job is something that is critical and pivotal not only to them and their families. And I want to center our conversation around those folks because that's where I think policy needs to happen. Um, and too often when we frame the discussion in a political context, and that is particularly true around sexual harassment, many of the solutions or lack thereof flow from the fact that we're talking about famous people. So I sort of want to take those people off the table. At the end of the day, we need to be focused on solutions that will work for regular folks who, who can't get on TV, um, who won't have an article in the New York Times that was lovely. I'd forgotten all about that. Um, and, and, and that nature. Um, uh, we, we need to focus on solutions um, that will matter to people who often don't have a voice. So I want to start there um, uh, in terms of what I hope our, uh, we can do in this conversation. Um, the other thing I want to say is that sexual harassment is not new. Right, I mean, there's been a new focus on it, but sexual harassment has been around for a long time. It is deeply woven into the fabric of our nation. And what I think is important to remember and think about it is that it is rooted in very long-standing biases about women and about men. Um, it is inextricably connected to what we think about uh, gender, race, and ethnicity. Um, and it has evolved over time. It is no longer sort of what people might call the traditional male-female sort of heteronormative construct. It is beyond that. It, it, is, it now deals with issues around gender identity and sexual orientation, how we define what femininity is, masculinity is, and uh, what we think it means to be male and female. Um, and so all of those issues um, are in play when we talk about sexual harassment. Um, and so I want to spend our time talking about what we think we can do to combat sexual harassment. And I want to focus on three things. And I should tell you at the outset, I often tell people, when I was a very young lawyer, in fact, I was just out of law school, I was working in a law firm, there was a, a presentation by one of the senior partners with all the first year associates. And he said, I want to tell you something very important. 
important. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. And we're all sitting there. And he said, no matter what you do, he said, you should always have three points. He said, don't have two, because people think you don't know anything. Four is too many. People will get bored. Always have three. So that has stuck with me. So I have three points. Um, and uh, it may actually not be three, but don't tell me. I'm just going to tell you it's three. Um, so the first thing I want to do, the first point, is really to talk a little bit about context, to put this conversation about sexual harassment into the broader historical context and just sort of why it is we are still dealing with sexual harassment um, more than 25 years after the Supreme Court said it was illegal. The second thing I want to do really quickly is talk a little bit about the legal framework. Um, I, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I just want to at least sort of position the conversation. And then the third thing um, I want to do is talk a little bit about the policy framework, but I'm also hoping that we can spend a good part of our discussion talking about policy solutions and what we think works. Um, and I will say that I will get to the, I will tell you at the beginning and the end what my bottom line is, which is that I am not one of those people who believes that there's nothing you can do. I think there's a lot you can do to remedy sexual harassment. Um, I do not think we need to throw up our hands and just say that's how people are, live with it. Um, I think that there's much that we can do. There's certainly a lot that's happened in this state, um, and there's a lot of work to do. Um, so that's uh, just to preview where I'm going with our conversation. But the first thing I want to start with is a little bit about context. Um, and to put this conversation into a broader societal context. And what I often tell people is that I think the conversation about sexual harassment stands sort of squarely at the intersection of three competing narratives, um, each of which, and then collectively, which disadvantage women, and often position women in a, um, a place where they are counter to the norm. And there are three narratives, one around work, one around just sort of gender and race generally, and third around equality and fairness. Um, and through each one of those narratives, there is one constant theme, and that is around the role of power and how power enables us or doesn't enable us to navigate those three narratives. And when I say power, I look at you know, how power shapes your ability to, to navigate the workplace or uh, some of the perceptions around gender or race. Who has power? Who doesn't have power? How do you empower folks who lack power? Right, like that, that conversation about power sort of runs through all those narratives. Um, the other thing I want to say just at the outset is I want to say what I mean when I talk about sexual harassment because I do think that there are a lot of times um, a lot of different perceptions about what the law um, um, prohibits and what it doesn't. And so when I refer to it, I am for the most part talking about it in a legal sense and that's you know actions of a sexual nature or uh, uh, focused on gender-based actions that are actions that are made a condition of employment. Um, it, it interferes with somebody's work. 
um, or it creates a hostile or intimidating work environment. And so, you know, actions of a sexual nature, it could be unwanted comments, it can be touching, it can be coercion, it can be physical, verbal, um, it can involve situations that are quid pro quo, you know, you do this, I give you that, um, or it could be subtler things that just create an unacceptable, hostile work environment. Um, the other thing that I often say to people is that even though people focus on the sex part, sexual harassment is illegal because it's about power. It's about a misuse and abuse of power. Sex is just the tool that people use, but it is, it is most assuredly and completely about power. So with that sort of definition, um, let me talk a little bit about the context. So the first, I said three competing narratives. One is about work. And what I want to say about that is that, you know, work obviously uh, um, is in a variety of different settings. There's lots of different types of work. But I think what's relevant for purposes of talking about sexual harassment is that our notion of what work is and what is considered highly valued work and work that is um, you know, highly sought after is, is, is a concept that has always been gendered. Um, there has been a historical notion that you know, men were the breadwinners, women were the bread makers, right? Like there was this, this notion. Now I, I say that knowing that that narrative was never completely true, right? Like women have always worked in some form or fashion, whether people thought of it as unpaid work or it was work, but people just thought it was not highly valued. That is particularly true for women of color who were always doing work and often working in homes. It's just that their work was either uncompensated or lowly compensated or somehow considered lesser or devalued because it was quote unquote women's work, right? And men were doing the real work. So there has always throughout our history been a narrative around work that has put women at a disadvantage. The second narrative is around gender and race. And truthfully, I, I could spend hours just talking about gender and race, um, as I'm sure we all can. But what I want to say about that is that at the same time that we've had this narrative about what work is and what work looks like, we also have had a very um, narrow view of what roles are appropriate for women and what roles are not. Um, and those views have been also uh, biased along racial and ethnic lines, right? Like their views about uh, what's the right role for white women as opposed to black women as opposed to Latinas as well. Um, and that has been true throughout our history and it continues to this day. And for purposes of sexual harassment, the, the, the important thing about that is that there have been many times throughout our history where those views about gender have also been hypersexualized. They have been um, uh, infused with a, notion, a lack of um, individual autonomy for women. Um, and there have been views of women sort of as almost like property whether literally or figuratively, right? Like that's a reality. You're my woman, you can't, you know, like whether we, we joke about it or not, that, that has been throughout our history. And the practical effect of that is that we view women sort of as lesser than or something to be owned, 
some, something to be bartered, something that, that um, uh, detracts from their individual dignity, right? So that's the second narrative. The third narrative is just around equality and fairness. And what I really want to say about that is that equality and non-discrimination are core values that um, are really a cornerstone of our democracy. And every piece of research that I've ever seen suggests that, that it is something that people are committed to. People believe that. They, 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 it's not just fake. People think that that's important. But at the same time, we actually tolerate a lot of inequality. Right, right throughout our country. That's, and that's been true throughout our history. And what I think is important from a perspective of looking at sexual harassment is that we, we did some research a few years ago sort of trying to get underneath sort of how people think about these issues. And one thing that was interesting is that people think about discrimination as a personal problem. Right, like it's a, it's a it's a dispute between individual people, and why that's important is that when people think of issues as interpersonal problems, they don't really think of policy solutions or government solutions. They don't think there's a role for anybody else. It's just you got you all have to work it out, um, and so that influences how we think about sexual harassment. And again, this is something that we've probably already seen and you've observed that a lot of times when these issues come up, people immediately go to well, it's it's there, it was a confusion, it was a problem between individuals, there's no role, I don't want to be in it, that type of thing. And it's, it also affects how we react to it, right? Like the, one of the newer areas that we should talk a little bit about in terms of policy solutions is bystander intervention. There's a lot of research that said that that, that, that is sort of a way to affect um, uh, sexual harassment. And it flows out of the fact that a lot of times we see stuff but we don't want to get involved. That's their issue, not my issue, right? So those three narratives, the, the um, women as outsiders in workplaces, sort of just sort of the way that we view women as being sort of second class and sort of this um, interesting notion of how we view equality and, and fairness and non-discrimination all sort of provide context for a conversation about sexual harassment. And what it does is make it, I think, harder, practically speaking, to actually sort of dig into and sort of rid the workplace, rid our society of sexual harassment. And uh, I think there's been a lot of conversation about why why we're still stuck with sexual harassment. I mean, I, I know I've been in those conversations. Why, why is it still here? And I think in addition to those narratives, what I hope you will think about as we sort of have a, a conversation about um, policy is, you know, I try to think about how do we actually attack it? What are the things we need to be thinking about? And I would at least point you to a couple of different things just to, to get you thinking, and I'm going to use this throughout the conversation. One is about structure, like st what I call structural problems, how our workplaces operate, how we have persistent sort of imbalances of power within the workplace, but also outside of it. Um, and just the, the reality is that in many workplaces, there are lots of folks who experience sexual harassment who don't have confidence that if they come forward, it will be dealt with fairly. Um, what we know from the data, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission did a report a couple of years ago. Um, uh, as many as 70% of sexual harassment claims in the workplace never get reported formally. 
and we did some research um, last year um, I'm looking at some unpublished data from the EEOC. Um, and somewhere around three quarters, 72, 71% of um, claims that are filed with alleging sexual harassment also at some point will have a claim involving retaliation. Right, so that, that there is this notion that if you speak up, something will happen to you. It deters people from saying something on the front end, and even when people do say something, they say something bad happened, right? Um, so there's clearly something that needs to be done around the structure, structures in which we operate. The second thing that I want to at least put on the table in terms of interventions is sort of broader, sort of more societal, right? Like this isn't just about, these attitudes don't just pop up in the workplace, right? Like they're broader issues. Um, and I would at least say in addition to the stereotypes that I've mentioned, the, the other thing is there is, in I think our society, a discomfort with talking about some of these issues, right? Like they're explicit, they're they're uncomfortable. Um, nobody wants to talk about, um, you know, things that are sexual in nature. And even when somebody ex is a survivor has experienced harassment, they don't want their motives questioned, their actions questioned. You know, I went home with somebody, but then it, you know something got out of hand. Like, you know, th those are th that's a practical reality. So there are are some societal issues that we need to deal with if we're really going to grapple with the problem. And then the, the, the last thing I would say is that there's some issues around legal protections that I think um, that we need to talk about. So I, I put all that on the table is in terms of context, right? Like that's the context for this discussion and why we're still um, in this very lovely room talking about sexual harassment in 2018, right? Um, next thing I'm going to do really quickly is talk about the legal framework. And as I said, there's a lot to be said about the, the law. What, but what I want to just say really quickly is that sexual harassment, at least at the federal level, there is a, a California, you are, you benefit from a, an incredibly strong employment law here in the state of California. That's not always true across the country. At the national level, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the main law that people use to um, address uh, workplace sexual harassment. It prohibits um, discrimination on a number of factors, including um, sex. Um, there is a long and very interesting history of cases that led to ultimate decision in 1986, Meritor v. Vinson, um, which is the landmark case where the Supreme Court said that uh, a hostile work environment um, uh, that is, is rooted in sexual harassment is a violation of Title VII. It's illegal sex discrimination. Um, I always say one of the things that's interesting that people don't focus a lot on is that many of those cases that led up to Meritor, including the Meritor decision, were cases involving women of color, um, um, Bundy v. Jackson, Barnes v. Costell were two key cases that also sort of lay the, the groundwork for that, that decision. Um, and it's sort of a, a little known piece that people don't focus on, but I often lift it up because it is a reminder that to, these days people always think about sexual harassment as largely an issue around white women. Um, and the data tells us that, I mean, 
lots of women experience sexual harassment, and, and it's certainly not to diminish that experience. Disproportionately, women of color are likely to experience it, mostly because they're disproportionately likely to be in lower-wage jobs, and there are higher percentages of those claims in the low-wage jobs. Um, the, a couple other key cases that I will just mention for purposes of our discussion, in 1998, there were two decisions that are, uh, they address the same issue, Farragher versus Boca Raton and Burlington versus Ellerth. Those cases are significant because the, the issue on the table was to what extent an employer can be liable for the actions of a supervisor. Um, and in both those cases, basically what the Supreme Court said that is um, if a supervisor sort of takes uh, some sort of tangible action against an employee and sexually harasses is an employee, the employer is automatically liable. Um, if they don't take a tangible action but they create a hostile environment, the employer may be liable. There is a defense that's available to employers. Um, but it is set, it made clear that employers could be liable not simply for their own actions but also their supervisors because the supervisors are basically their people, right? Um, and the reason I lift that case up though is not solely for that principle because there's been actually a, a, some interesting literature recently that has suggested that one of the downsides, not so much of the decision itself, is that um, what, it, what it pushed employers to do was to um, train to the letter of the law. And what I mean by that is that they began to do training, this sort of laid out, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. If you have a policy and uh, uh, you do some, uh, uh, take reasonable care to prevent harassment, um, it could be a defense, right? So what employers immediately started doing was saying, I want to make, do my training to make sure I meet this defense, right? And so the downside of that is that that's all they did. Right, and so the bigger, deeper question of how do you actually change the culture of a workplace sort of was left to the side. It's more of, I wanna make sure that I'm not liable, right? Particularly if I've got a supervisor, I'm a big company, I wanna know what I have to do to make sure that some crazy person doesn't make me liable, right? So that's why I lift those cases up, is because that's, people point to that, that decision as being one way, place where the training shifted a little bit. The last thing I'll say just about those cases, cases recently we've seen a pulling back in terms of um, protections against harassment. Two cases that happened in 2013, both 5-4 decisions, one written by Justice Alito, other written by Justice Kennedy, both involving racial harassment, but are relevant for purposes of our discussion around sexual harassment. One is Vance versus Ball State. Um, looked at this question of who a supervisor is um, and basically said that um, uh, the only people who count as supervisors are people who have been specifically empowered um, to by the employer to take certain what they call tangible employment actions, who can hire and fire, right? So that's a very narrow definition, right? Justice Ginsburg in her dissent said, you know, there are lots of other people who do control your daily work activities, who operate like supervisors, but they may not be formally called a supervisor. So that's a, a significant role back in terms of uh, employer liability. The other, Nassar, uh, is University of Texas Southwestern Medical um, Center versus Nassar, um, dealt with the issue of retaliation um, and how you prove retaliation, as I mentioned to you earlier, is a, um, a significant issue. Sorry. Um, uh, and 
there the court tightened the standard that you use to prove retaliation. And ba basically looking at the question of what types of actions you have to show caused the retaliation. Right, but and what they changed this to um, is a but-for standard. You have to show that the actions that you allege caused the retaliation were um, were the but-for reason that the retaliation occurred. Right, like that—that that was the main thing that made that retaliation occur. Rather than a, a better standard, I would argue is a motivating factor. Right, like it's one of you, you. Sometimes you can't dissect. There are like 50 million things going on. You know, it's one of the reasons, and it caused retaliation to happen. It's nearly impossible to say it's the but-for factor. Again, Justice Ginsburg, the voice of reason, which is why we love her, um, uh, you know, pushed instead for you know a motivating factor standard. So those two cases um, are out there. They have um, uh, uh, influenced uh, the the legal framework. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll stop, um, is the policy framework. What can we do? And I actually want to use a good bit of our discussion to talk about that. Um, I will say that in, just in general, um, and I think one of the readings that you had, um, you know, there's a lot that I think we can do, both looking um, in the workplace itself around removing barriers to employment on the outset, promoting greater accountability amongst, uh, within the workplace, empowering survivors and workers who experience harassment. Um, also, things that are more broad and societal around stronger enforcement, more greater investment in enforcement, support services for survivors, um, um, public education, all of those types of things are critical policy interventions. Um, um, and, and also strengthening legal barriers. But I, I wanna leave most of that for our discussion. Um, and I, I do wanna just close with um, a quote that I often use um, because, um, because I like it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, uh, also say that, I, uh, it's a quote from uh, Maya Angelou, and she once said, each time a woman stands up for herself without knowing it possibly, without claiming it, she stands up for all women. And I always use that quote because it is a reminder that each one of us, not only women but men, um, have an, an opportunity to stand up and to push for change. Um, and if we do so, um, we can really move past the inevitable, inevitability, um, perceived inevitability of um, uh, the status quo and really transform what this current context looks like around sexual harassment. And I think that should be our charge, that should be our task, to really think through what are the complement of things that we can do to fundamentally make a difference. Um, and so that, with that, um, I'm going to stop and turn it over to State Senator Jackson and then go from there. Thank you very much. It is on, great. Well, good evening, and it's certainly an honor to be here. Thank you so much, and thank you, Jocelyn, for your great words. I would just like to start off by saying we live in California, thank God, and we are doing things a little bit more proactively, uh, taking some of the Supreme Court rulings and saying, nah, 
we're going to do it better. We're going we're gonna to protect people. We're not going to shift the burdens of proof so that it's almost impossible to prove your case. We know that when people step up with claims of sexual harassment, as you mentioned, 70% of them, probably more, don't even go reported. When people have the courage to stand up and speak out, uh, we need to provide the opportunity for them to be able to make their case, but do it fairly. And I think that's critically important. The attacks that we've been seeing on claims of sexual harassment are that people are lying. Uh, that never happened. Their memories are bad. I would never do such a thing. And, and so we still find that the, the victims of sexual harassment are frequently uh, put in the place of being the uh, defendant. We have to prove our righteousness. Uh, and uh, that is, I think, something that has been and continues to be a policy by those who don't want to see us addressing the issue. So um, here in California, and I think with the Me Too movement in general, there have been a lot of big players, big national uh, leaders, so to speak, who have been um, forced to withdraw from the world uh, of power as a result of allegations that have been corroborated. And you'll notice that most of these allegations are allegations that have been brought forth by dozens of women. Not one or two, but dozens. Because one or two women um, obviously are not telling the truth. Dozens of women, you just can't hide behind that, which is unfortunate. So here in California, and I think nationally, we are definitely in the midst of a cultural sea change on this issue. This is indeed about power. This is indeed about control. And in today's workforce, women are working more than ever. And women tend to work because they need the money to support themselves and their families. There is an economic driver here. And so when I did my equal pay bill back in 2015, I talked about this not as a fairness issue, but as an economic issue. And when you think about it, when you think that in California alone, we leave anywhere from 39 to $69 billion a year on the table because women are not paid equally or fairly for work that is substantially similar to their male counterparts, what does that mean for those families? What does it mean for the community? What does it mean for the local economy? Well, sexual harassment is a very similar issue because when you're afraid to go to work because you are going to be harassed by either your employer or a co-worker, um, your ability to do your job in the, and maximize your potential is significantly compromised. And when we look at this issue of sexual harassment, I think it's critical that we look at it this way. This is a civil rights issue. This is the right to equal opportunity in the workplace issue. This isn't about he said, she said, oh, I was just flirting, or oh, I was just admiring the cleavage uh, based upon whatever outfit she was wearing. I didn't mean anything by it. It's the impact it has on the worker. It's the impact, actually, it has on the employer. When your employees are not able to do their best, your workplace suffers. And so um, I have uh, tried to bring that approach uh, to the work I've done in the past couple years. Heck, it worked in 2015 after fighting for 35 years to get an equal pay bill. I ended up with a bill that had almost unanimous support and is in fact now the template for 41 other states in the country. Um, and thank you. 
But the point is we have to talk about this as an economic issue, as an equality issue. You young women go out for it. It is about equality, but it's also about the economic impacts it, have, it, it has on our families. So the Me Too movement not only raised awareness about the pervasiveness of sexual harassment across the workplace and industries, it also shed light on the complex legal and cultural factors that enable it to persist. I have gone around the room and I'd like to do this here. Uh, there are women in, uh, in this room today who are my age, maybe a couple older, but not too many. How many women in this room, during the course of their careers and lives, have uh, been victims of sexual harassment? Well, that's a smaller number than I would have thought. Maybe we need to define what we mean by sexual harassment. But the point is that this is something that's been going on probably since the beginning of time because it's an ability to assert power over others. In our lower income communities, we have farm workers. The stories about farm workers being sexually harassed are, would just knock your socks off. We have, we have janitorial workers who are working at 1130 at night up on the 17th floor of a building who are sexually harassed and assaulted by their supervisors. They don't say anything because they need to bring that money home to support their families. And the, and the harassers know this. And so what we've tried to do is to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace as well as hold people accountable for it. You talked, boy, I've got the notes that my staff wrote. I could go on for an hour. Okay, so I'm going to go on for two more minutes and tell you that one of the things that we need to do is we need to hold employers responsible for this. Not just if they're a supervisor, but as a coworker. Because as you mentioned, employers will do everything they can to avoid responsibility for this behavior. And so part of the legislation that I have done, uh, SB 1300 in particular, I did a bill before that SB 224, which addressed the very specific issues that we saw up in Silicon Valley. When we had these women entrepreneurs, these who have these great ideas for the future, who end up uh, being invited to discuss their ideas with their angel investors at 11 o'clock in the angel investors suite at a hotel. You know that's not what they want to talk about. And it's impacted the ability of these women to get ahead. We've heard a lot about actors and actresses who have been the victims of this harassment. And we've heard a lot about it in the world of politics. It, it, goes, it is pervasive throughout all occupations, but I did a bill that specifically made it clear that an employer-employee relationship isn't the only basis upon which you can make a claim of sexual harassment. It's in all kinds of different relationships, and we added those to the list. Briefly, SB 1300, I'm very proud of this bill. It's an omnibus bill that makes comprehensive reforms to combating harassment in the workplace. It ends legal tactics that prevent victims from speaking out Again, the harassment, the, the retaliation issue, and it seeks to provide guidance to the courts on what severe or pervasive legal, the legal standard is. You know, most of these judges are men. And one of the cases, I'll just mention briefly, involved a, a, a court of appeals, a federal district court of appeal, uh, or district court. Judge Kaczynski was one of the parties, and of course he left because he was forcing his law clerks to watch pornography on his... Um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, very big 
um, you know, court, and they had a case that came to them where a woman who had been a 911 operator up in San Mateo, California, was answering a 911 call when one of her coworkers came from behind her and stuck his hand down her blouse. And the court said, well, that isn't severe or pervasive. It was one time and it wasn't such a big deal and overturned the case. So what we did is we made clear that severe, pervasive, mean things like that that cause uh, a person to no longer be able uh, to operate doing their best job for fear that someone's gonna come and literally assault them. I mean, basic things like this. The fact that we have to go there though uh, is, is part of the frustration we've had and we're seeing the, the courts, the federal courts, go backwards. In California, we are going forwards. Uh, I'll end by um, telling a story that happened on Monday and part of this is we need more women in positions of power, which is why I did a bill that the governor signed that has people who know the legal process happily surprised. It's a bill that requires in California corporations which are headquartered here, publicly traded, are now gonna have to have more women on their boards of directors. We know that when women are in those positions of power, this behavior is reduced. And the governor signed the bill, and now, by the way, we're seeing other states say, ooh, can I see a copy of that? We need that in our state. But what I wanna tell you is on Monday, when we swore in our new legislators, and we now have, I think it's 36 women, 36 women who are members of the Bipartisan California Legislative Women's Caucus, up from, I think it was 26 uh, just uh, last year. When the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court was swearing in the newly elected Secretary of the Senate, I was sitting there watching as the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Kantil Sakauwe, a woman of color, of Filipino background, swearing in a Latina who was there with her 18-month-old her, in her arms, who was not really wild about the experience, and this little one dropped her pacifier on the floor. The Chief Justice bent down, picked it up, handed it to the mother without missing a beat. Now think about that visual image. And with that, I will commend you to this conversation and thank you for being here. Now it's your turn. Um, one of the wonderful things about such speakers is not only are they clear, not only are they rich and deep, but they are on time. We have plenty of opportunities to explore with them the great foundation that they've laid for this conversation on combating sexual harassment. And I'd like you to direct your comments and questions to them as well as to um, Anna Everett, who's on our far left there, and also to Charlotte um, Moore, who's on our right here. So let's begin. And I'll let, um, Jocelyn, do the honors by acknowledging um, your questions, and the students will bring you mics so that when you speak, all of us can hear, and your voice will also, of course, be captured for our podcasts, which are available on publicsquaresb.com. 
Thank you. Um, I, and I'll just say, um, I, I know uh, this young lady here has a microphone, um, and, but I um, want to say a couple things at the outset, um, and then um, I do want to begin and get your input. And, and as I said uh, at the beginning, so I, I have worked on sexual harassment for a long time. Uh, I, more years than I care to admit. Uh, and I've written a fair bit, and, and I know you got a couple pieces that I did. And, but I would say that the, the work to really figure out the mix of solutions to really address this problem is work that is ongoing. Right, like that's that is that is why um, the leadership of State Senator Jackson is so important. Because truthfully, you all are, and I'm saying this not because she's seated here. It's it's nice that she's seated here, but I would say it anyway. Um, you all are really on the cutting edge. Truthfully, the vast majority of states have not really moved beyond, I mean, and this is sort of crazy, beyond sort of trying to fix the state house, right? Like the, when, when they started talking about stuff in Congress, it turned out there were a bunch of state houses that actually, shockingly, had similar issues, right? But given what we know about sexual harassment and the abuse of power that comes with sexual harassment, it's not surprising that a lot of state houses across the country were places where this problem occurred. And so many states, to the extent that they've engaged, they've engaged on that. But they've not really done much beyond that, right? So, I, and I, it's part of the reason that I started the conversation the way I did. So, I really am looking to you to, to help with some of the thinking around what do we think the solutions ought to be? And what do we think is workable? Um, particularly, it's easier when you start talking about fixing a particular legal case, but it's harder when you start talking about how do you really change the culture of the workplace, right? Like the, they're not, I tell people all the time, there are not many policies I can write to fix workplace culture. There's some, but they're not a lot. Um, and so I hope that you will help us to think through a little bit um, um, that question, and I think you had a your your microphone. So I want to. I have a couple of questions that I want to throw out, but I, I why don't you start if you have a thought? Um, sure. I've spent uh, the last thirty five years in the corporate world in banking, and the last fifteen years on public company boards. Mm -hmm. And what my experience has been is that usually the HR departments within big companies act as vehicles of protection to the corporation. Mm -hmm. And most of employees, especially women, think the opposite, that it's there to assist them. And they're there to protect the corporation. And I think many of the issues that have to change are a result of that. Um, HR, the general counsel's office, is there to protect the corporation and the senior officers. Right, right. I, I completely agree with you, and I think it raises a couple of questions that I really wanted to put on the table because I, I do think um, um, there are a couple of things going on. One is that the, there is a perception that HR, and it often is about protecting the company, but it's also why a lot of people don't go to HR. Right, like I think that that dynamic is also in play. It's why um, the percentages um, uh, uh, suggest that the, there's such significant underreporting. Um, but it also has to do with what those folks have been tasked with, right? Like if 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 your charge is 
I just want to keep you know everything legal, and I, you know don't get me in court, right? Like you you have a different mindset than if you say your task is to make sure that this is a culture where everybody can succeed, right? Or a uh, a culture that is free of discrimination. So I think um, you know there's a question about you know where um, what's the charge to the HR folks. And I think um, I was going to mention, so I'm glad you did, that the point about women on corporate boards um, is also um, groundbreaking. Right? There's been a lot of work in thinking about women on corporate boards. This is a long-standing problem. There have been lots of projects. But um, the, the research that we know out there about um, what does drive change around sexual harassment? One of them is more women, right? More women in leadership at the higher levels. Um, and it is not, it is um, something that may seem obvious, but it's not the first solution that people think about, right? Like it is about, you know, sort of creating a more equitable workplace. Um, uh, uh, so whether it's women on boards, women in the C-suite, women as managers and supervisors at all levels, that sort of increase of women has been shown to change, um, change the environment. And that's particularly true. There's a number of researchers who've said that training, generally speaking, doesn't work. Right? I mean, that's unfortunate. And so part of the dynamic now these days is to develop better training. But what does work is more women. And also, the, you mentioned earlier bystander training. The bill SB 1300 also includes a provision to authorize companies uh, to provide bystander training. We know it works in the college setting. It's been very successful in helping uh, reduce situations where um, people would other, uh, students would otherwise be compromised, teaching that kind of passive but effective intervention. I wasn't able to get that in the bill as a mandate, but it's now been authorized uh, so that um, each uh, employers are now required to provide information to employees on how to report harassment. Very important that they let it be known. Again, maybe HRs are going to finally start having to take this responsibility. But it also authorizes employers to provide bystander intervention training, something that I, I, I was chuckling because I was having a conversation with my staff just before I came over here. Do we want to bring that bill back again this year? Uh, we know that that is a lot more effective uh, than just a two-hour training program where essentially all you do is you, you train people how to avoid litigation, but not necessarily how to avoid the behavior. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to move this way. Thank you. Um, this conversation that you guys have, have raised um, have, has gotten my brain sort of on fire. So I want to make three points. Mm -hmm. um, the first is um, I really appreciate, <laughs> Jocelyn, your desire to uh, bring the conversation around to addressing women of color mm -hmm. um, as a kind of um, unseen or uh, minimized um, category of survivors. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important to call attention to that. But as a professor of film and media studies, I think one of those issues around um, women of color has to do with the stereotypes that you mentioned. And in our media, one of the reasons that I think it is um, you know, women of color's positions can be um, you know, rendered invisible 
is that they're, they're perpetrated as being hypersexual, as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. But what that suggested is like, how can you rape somebody who's promiscuous, right? So there's the assumption that, right. you know, that the, the women of color are inviting this. And so, mm -hmm. you know, so, so their status as victims or survivors, you know, doesn't quite get right. recognized. Right. The other thing is, as a professor of, of media, I get so frustrated with some of the narratives that sort of encourage rape culture and this idea that no doesn't mean no. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as we see in many of films, there's this there's a coquettishness and a coyness that, you know, women are pretending they don't really want it. And so they say no, and they just need a forceful man. Mm -hmm. And when I'm teaching, I'm constantly pointing that out and saying, no, that is wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think uh, by acknowledging the ways in which our culture helps to reinforce these stereotypes and, in fact, to sort of promote them is really crucial. The second point I wanted to make um, has to do with this idea of um, the bystander intervention. Um, you know, the idea that uh, for, for people who witness the, um, um, an, an assault or I'm not quite sure, I really appreciate how you're bringing in, um, in your articles, this idea that you really do have to train people between the difference in sexual assault, um, mis misconduct, so I think the education part is mm -hmm. really key because if you get somebody who sees women uh, being victimized, and in the case of um, you know just the uh, you know related to the Kavanaugh situation, mm -hmm. um, you know you see that somebody comes forward reluctantly, and if the if the perpetrator isn't punished, then there's a real sense that you know, why should you put right. your neck out right. there? And for somebody right. who's even witnessing it, it's like, well, if that's gonna happen to somebody at that level, why should I stick my neck out? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really do have to, I think, encourage and support people who can come forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the, the third part I wanted to make has to do with this idea of not only um, Me Too and what it's meant in terms of um, making the case for our need to recognize the power dynamics, mm -hmm. you know, in sexual harassment that it is about power. I do want to recouple um, the idea of sex and power because, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is when, when I hear people say, well, um, you know, sexual assault or um, rape isn't about sex, it's about power. Well, for me, that's a little less precise mm -hmm. because there are other ways to be violent and to exert power. Mm -hmm. But it's a sexual act, mm -hmm. so you have to bring this. You have to recouple the sex and the violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it's really important as we think about you know these issues is the um, the backlash against Me Too, and that's the final point I wanted to end on. There, there's been I was I was listening to um, to I think it was NPR, and there was a conversation just yesterday, and it was so fortuitous because I knew we were having this conversation. Mm -hmm. But they were talking about, as a result of the Me Too movement, men in, um, in executive positions no right. longer want to mentor women right. because right. they feel like if they mentor women, then they are putting themselves in the position of being uh, falsely accused. Right. And right. what that means then is it limits women's ability to move up the corporate ladder. Right. So there is this backlash and the Him Too movement that's creating a real sense of peril for, mm -hmm. for you know, women who are trying to uh, climb the corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, the, this, this woman who, um, uh, who got a hashtag going um, saying him too 
uh, she, she um, po posted something about her son and saying that here's my son, he was a, um, he was a military, um, he's a vet and he's a nice guy, but he can't ask women out on dates anymore because of the Me Too movement. And so she started the Him Too. Mm -hmm. He was mortified and horrified because he didn't agree with that. Mm -hmm. And you know, so it created this whole big Twitter, social media conversation around Him Too. Mm -hmm. So you know, at the same time that, um, that uh, the Me Too movement has been so productive in terms of alerting us you know, to the pervasiveness and the, uh, and the consistency um, and the persistence of sexual harassment, there's this backlash. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for us to think about how that will, um, has put a chill on, you know, men mentoring women. And in these high executive offices, there are only men who are in a position to mentor mm -hmm. women. And if they're feeling like they don't want to fly, one of the reports said that they don't want to fly with, with their women colleagues. They don't want to be in the same space with them. They don't do social um, events with women because they don't want to be um, you know, charged. So I think there's so much here that we have to consider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, uh, I have a couple thoughts, but I want to um, pass the, the mic in order to make to change the culture, as you all mentioned, do you think to make the public more aware of this, do we need more research, really scientific research by age, race, economic status, etc.? And is this the future? Is this being? Is this a plan? Will it be done? Because I don't think we can change the culture unless the public is more aware. Right. Right. I completely agree. Let me respond to a couple things, and then I think uh, there's somebody else who has a, a microphone. Um, um, I, I completely agree, and I'm going to pass this down to State Senator Jackson, too. Um, uh, so a couple things. I, I think the thing that you both have raised is that much of the conversation about sexual harassment focuses on the workplace, but it's bigger than that. So I think you're both right that we can't begin to really address the issue unless we're looking at this from a societal perspective. And I agree with you absolutely. I think there's research that needs to be done about how different communities um, um, respond around um, n not simply um, harassment, but their views about gender. Um, I think your point is w well taken about their cultural differences and perceptions. I was um, at an event recently over the summer, um, a panel of all black women, and one of our panelists was a woman named Renita Weems, who's a, a, a renowned African-American female theologian, who basically said, you know, look, when it comes to race, black women are like all over it. But when it comes to gender, with sexism, it's just like, well, they were naughty, right? Like th there are differences sometimes in how we perceive these issues that are cultural, and I think that it's not unique to the black community, right? So, so there's clearly research and work that needs to happen at a, a societal level. Um, the other thing that I think you raised um, that I do want to flag because I think it's important for us to try to dissect it is the resilience of power. Right, like when I think about the Kavanaugh hearing, which I worked on more than I care to admit, that is like a classic example of the resilience of power, right? Backlash that we've seen is all about people in power saying, I'm only gonna deal with this so much, right? 
And, and I think it has revealed how hard it is to disrupt power and to really do more than incremental changes. Even if it's meant powerful people falling down, it's different, you know, yes, Les Moonves may be gone from CBS, but that's a whole different animal than fundamentally changing that culture, right? Fox News, like all of them, right? This is, so I wanna put that on the table too, that when we think about solutions beyond sort of the societal education, public education research, absolutely. But there also are a whole bunch of other things we need to think about of how you dislodge power. I think part of it too is that the younger generation um, just doesn't put up with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think of it in the whole issue of gender. You know, we have more than two genders now. Um, and when you talk to young people, they look at you and go, well, what's your problem? Uh, we now have something called non-binary. Mm -hmm. It's not that we now have it, but, but, uh, but um, sexuality and gender are much more fluid today. We have the transgender community. We have all sorts of things that us old folks really weren't aware of uh, necessarily. And I think I, I have to respectfully um, disagree with the notion that men can't have uh, dinner with women because exactly. they'll be accused of sexual, that is um, uh, so, um, uh, well, it's beyond absurd, it's, it's uh, insulting. Yeah. Uh, it's insulting to men, too. The notion that you can't, that, that you're gonna have a meal and then a woman's gonna accuse you of sexual harassment. I think we have to, uh, persistence I think is what we need to do, get more women. That's why this bill that I did, I, I just love this bill because it requires co uh, corporations, if you have six or more uh, members, you have to have at least two women on the board. If it's nine or more, you have to have at least three. This is called a critical mass. Behaviors will change when you have three women sitting there and these guys decide they want to tell really raunchy stories or, you know, talk about conquests or uh, behave in ways that they think, and not necessarily because they really think that way, but because they think they're expected as men to demonstrate their ability to control and overpower women. And so part of the answer to this is we've got to do a better job educating our boys. Mm -hmm. What does it really mean to be a man? And there, we have people like Jackson Katz, who some of you may know, and I think he's been here to town. He works with young boys on uh, that being a man doesn't mean you have to be violent and control women and so forth. And I think when you talk about how do we make this change, this is generational. I did legislation called Yes Means Yes on the college campus. We don't talk about you have to get to know. Right. What we've done is we're teaching young people respectful relationships and that when you want to have sexual relations, it has to be a yes. So if any of you have seen, and I commend this to you, when we talk about consent, Go on YouTube and look at this marvelous four-minute video called Would You Like a Cup of Tea? And it is, and you need the British version because it's so much better. <laughs> and basically it talks about, analogizes, if last week you wanted a cup of tea, maybe this week you don't want a cup of tea. And it makes a very clear statement, and I mention this because it is, it is transformational because what we're doing is we're getting into a societal norm and we're changing it 
right there in real time, particularly for younger people. So I have, I'm confident we can do this, um, and, and it takes all different levels of kinds of activities to make it happen. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I, thank you very much, State Senator Jackson. You basically encapsulated everything. I was going to make a comment. See my hand, I'll say it. I have a 20, we have a 20-year-old-ish daughter. I'm in my 60s. What I was taught I should tolerate in my corporate world mm -hmm. is way different than our 20-year-old. Mm -hmm. She has been sexually harassed. She has confronted the people. She has no qualms about confronting. And I do believe, as you said, at the college level, you're seeing uh, it's working. Uh, and I think that, quite frankly, it's a generational situation. Mm -hmm. I think that, no offense, and I, as I said, I'm in my 60s. I think people 50s, 60s, 70s, it was okay. It was more accepted for a little bit more of the flirtation and step, and step over that border. It's not okay for the younger generation. So I think that the pendulum is swinging one way, and I think it'll swing back to be in the middle. But I, I'm happy we're all having the conversation. And I do think our younger generations, I think, will change it. And I'm seeing, I think you're already seeing that happening in the college level. Correct? Well, with all due respect, I agree with the lady. As a man that's been in business for 60 years, had many employees, construction, where the hazing and is tough on boys, you try to get a lady or a female into your construction company, it really gets tough. And I'm at a point where I am very concerned sometimes about what I say, what I do. Politically correct is taken off in such a far distance that it's so right, it is so uncomfortable just to go up to a strange lady and say hi, because it's totally misinterpreted many times. Um, can I just say something real quick? I just wanted to be clear. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that what I've, what I've been reading about what, I'm, what I've been reading about is that this has been one of the consequences of the backlash. I'm not saying that that's something that is right or it's something that we need to uh, you know, necessarily be on eggshells about. I'm just calling attention to this unintended consequence of this backlash and how it's doubly jeopardizing women because men in power can exclude women and then continue to have a male-dominated field because they can claim an alibi of, well, I might get charged. So mm -hmm. I just want to be absolutely clear about that. But I understand people are concerned about how do we behave. Well, just behave like, right, like, you know, it's not that hard. <laughs> I would like to also address the young, um, the woman who shared the story about your daughter and how she spoke up for herself. She sits on a board level. Is that, is that what you said? She sits on executive board. Your daughter? Oh, no, no. She doesn't college. sit. She's in her She's in a, Okay. She's in Right, and, and I, comm I commend your daughter for speaking up for herself and writing a commentary. And to the point of Senator Jackson saying that um, the, the new leaders coming up today in college, 
you're like, what's your problem? And you're ready to speak up for yourself, and we need that. But we also, as those who have been there dealing with it and it wasn't acceptable to speak up for ourselves, we need to help navigate on how to implement different policies and regulatory statutes so that those, those, those policies where when you hire a woman, she's not paid as much as a man. And so that hidden undertone of power over women who are employed coming in saying, I need equal pay because it's happening. And just be taken back to when Senator Jackson asked who um, has been victims of uh, Me Too, and there was a small showing of hands, I can unequivocally tell you that we've all have been exposed to it, maybe not sexually, but socioeconomically. Because if you've ever worked for anyone, or even if you are your own business person and you're a woman, you're not getting paid as much as a man. As you all know, data shows um, Asian women get paid more than white women, white women get paid more than African American women, and um, Hispanic women get paid less on the totem pole. That's a form. So every hand should have gone up. I mean, I'm a business owner, and I can tell you that my partner, who is a man, he gets paid $15 more to fill out the same form I fill out. And that's because of a piece of regulation. So we need to change laws. We need to change some, some policies so that we don't perpetuate the, the issue with inequality and, um, and equity. I'd like to hear what this gentleman might, might say as how he, at his age, with his experience, might change his culture or, or cultures of that era and that ilk. To Frank. <laughs> no, Frank. How can we do it? I don't know that I have an answer. Think about it. Okay, we'll get back. Sure, sure. Um, yes. Okay. Um, so, um, well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, and I'm a huge um, admirer of Senator Jackson. Um, I actually am the executive director of a domestic violence um, agency, and so what really resonated with me, um, I think uh, what you said, Jocelyn, is um, the societal issues, because what we see, and I think what, what I've really learned in the last 10 months is harassment, violence, is um, it's really a social justice issue. Um, you know, not, not everyone works for a corporation. In fact, I think, you know, I don't know what the stats are, but I would say that probably with the gig economy, most, most young people, particularly women, and particularly the underserved, don't work for a corporation. They're the, they are the, the um, hotel workers, they're the farm workers, uh, they're the caregivers, and they don't have a voice. So when we look at intimate partner violence at the California Partnership to End Domestic Violence, we look at it, we're trying to look at it as a social justice issue. Poverty, empowerment of women, um, immigration, there's all kinds of issues. And so um, I really, I love the fact, and certainly as, a, as an executive woman who, and actually has, who have, has two daughters, one who works for a very large company, Adidas, 
and the other one who works in the gig economy, I see sort of both sides. So we all have to work together, I think, to change those societal norms. And we have to protect the underserved. There, there's just no other way around it because it's really a drag, as you said, on the economy. And I think on our collective consciousness. So, so Hannibal, thank you for all the work you've done. You're, you know, one of my heroes. So, hero wins. Thank you. And thank Maureen, you it does not look 60. Um, I, I will. Oh, okay, no way. I will say um, thank you for those remarks. Um, I will say that um, uh, just picking up on your point, one of the ways that California has been a leader is because there have been some industry-specific initiatives. Um, and uh, State Senator Jackson specifically mentioned the work around janitorial workers. Um, you know, there have been some initiatives. Um, uh, California and Oregon have been leaders in that space. Um, there's been work with farm workers, um, particularly um, there's work in, in Florida um, um, that has been done in particular with farm workers. So I do think that there have been some very targeted efforts, but not enough. Um, I, I do want to go back to your, your point that you raised about um, the workplace, because we've talked a lot. I mean, it's interesting. Usually, um, when people dig into this issue, and maybe this is just the nature of the audience, a lot of times when I talk to folks, I'm talking to people who we get caught up in the minutiae of legal cases and things like that and don't get to the big picture, broader societal questions. So I, um, I do think in terms of solutions and policy solutions and where we need to go, the fact that you all have gone straight to sort of the broader issue issue is really important. But I also think we need to grapple with the workplace issue. Because the truth of the matter is that you've put on the table um, sort of the nub of the problem. Right, like, the, and I'll put on the, um, the table also some data. So we think of sexual harassment as a women's issue. It is not. Um, if you look at the EEOC, just under a fifth, around 16, 17, 18 percent uh, every other um, every year are claims filed by men. So it's not exclusively about women. Um, we also know, we looked at some unpublished EEOC data to look at the gender composition of, of um, sort of, uh, of different industries to try to figure out if there was something that it, um, uh, we could see. And basically, sexual harassment occurs across industry, as we know. Um, and the one thing that we know is that the more male an industry is, the more um, women have a higher likelihood of filing claims. Mm -hmm. In other words, industries um, that are the predominantly male, women are far more likely to file claims than men. The industry, the health industry, where there is the closest in terms of um, percentages of women and men, is the industry where the, the rate of claims that men and women file is almost the same. So I put that on the table because what it says to me, I mean, there's a lot more research we need to do, but what it says to me is um, something that um, State Senator Jackson said is that our notions around gender um, matter. 
right? Like when you talked about a predominantly male workforce, like there's hazing that happens with everybody. It's not just about women, men, like those, those environments, you know, men um, file claims too. Those are difficult environments and we're still sort of trying to figure out how to navigate them, right? Like we don't really know the answer and I think, so when we sort of throw in sexual harassment and say, what's the fix, right? Like I, when people say, how do you fix culture? I, I say to people, I don't know, right? Like I have some thoughts about it. I have lots of thoughts about it. But if there was an answer, we I wouldn't I wouldn't be here, you know, for the, or at least not for this reason, right? Like we, the, it's hard to change culture, um, and so I think you know the question that I put on the table for folks to think about is you know think about your own workplaces. Like what what would be successful and useful to change culture. We never want a situation where men or women feel that they can't meet with anybody. That's clearly not a solution. Right. It's also not a solution to say you can't approach people, engage. We want people to be able to have a rigorous, thoughtful conversation at all different levels. So the so the the question is, how do you ensure that you're creating an environment um, that operates fairly? And in many cases, what you're talking about is fundamentally restructuring how you operate. Right, like that's when I go back to when I said male-centric environments. We, th this is not new. Right, like most workplaces have been um, uh, developed around a male-centric norm of what a worker looks like, operates like, whether you're talking about the state house and the, and the lawmaker with the baby, right? Like they're still dealing, they're dealing with that in the Congress now, right? Like they've got a bunch of new moms and they don't have, you know, the capacity to deal with the fact that they've got new moms. It's ridiculous, right? But I mean, that's not new. Um, and, and the same is, is true in sort of our, our workplaces now. And, and so I think, um, you know, I put on the table for us to think about, you know, what are some of the solutions? What would make a difference? Um, uh, I also want a, uh, a young person, a younger person. Not that we are all young, young in spirit, young in heart. Um, but I, I'd love to get your thoughts, too. Um, so I just, I love all of what you guys are saying, and I really appreciate you being here. Um, Senator Jackson, I wanted to comment on what you said about educating young boys about dip, like healthier ways for them to react to certain situations. And it reminded me of a seminar I saw recently on positive parenting. And that was saying that kids fundamentally want two things, which is attention and power. <laughs> so I think maybe reframing power or how they get power and attention to maybe like um, controlling their impulses or working with women, even though it's uncomfortable, working with them on important issues, they can maybe feel a sense of power because they're making a difference, even if they're working with people who are differently, different than them. Um, so I guess I was just wondering if you think power could be looked at in a positive way and if we could teach young men how to have power in healthy ways. Absolutely, and I think we can teach young women too how to have power so that it isn't the question of challenging one's manhood or one's femininity. Um, I think we have to change some of those definitions. I have here my Wonder Woman bracelet, and I gave one to my five-year-old granddaughter, and every time her two-year-old brother tries to assert his power over her, she shows him her bracelet. <laughs> So um, I, I think, yes, I think we really need to be more sensitive uh, to the fact that uh, traditionally we have had these different roles mm -hmm. and that the world is changing. And it doesn't mean that men should feel threatened. 
I think that's the concern. And Frank, I think that's, um, that's something that, uh, you know, no one, no one is really to blame. But what we need to do is change that culture. And frankly, I think the changes come from young people. I think the way people parent uh, is going to be significant. I think the way uh, young girls start thinking about what their future can look like. Um, I, we need to reevaluate re the way we define masculinity and femininity. It isn't, it isn't just working with young boys. It's also working with young girls. Um, and what we found, and I've done legislation on this, not only at the college level on yes means yes, but at the high school level, because if you start at college, you started too late. Even if you start at the high school level, you start too late. So what, we, uh, what I did is I did a bill that uh, starting at the most, um, the earliest possible ages in an age-appropriate way, teaching children about respectful relationships. And that doesn't mean, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? But we know that the real change that occurs is right around the point of puberty. So what is it, uh, uh, the Ophelia, what was the name of that? Uh, reviving, uh, reviving Ophelia. Talking about what happens to girls at about fifth grade when they start Ch their bodies start changing. And, and suddenly they start looking and say, what am I supposed to, what is a woman supposed to be? We have to start changing those definitions and expectations, and the same with boys. And so, um, I, I, again, I'm very hopeful. As older folks, I think we can look to inspiration from the way younger people are looking at the world. You also, by the way, can look to us for some of these other things, too, you know, I mean. Um, the, this millennial generation not understanding what an alarm clock is. Um, but that's another conversation we can have later. But seriously, just getting us to work together to try to change a world that really needs to change. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, I think I saw this gentleman's hand first, but then I'll, I'll, I'll pick up some other people. You, sir. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, I'll go here. You had. Okay. Hi, I'm Jocelyn, thank you so much for being with us and coming all this way. Um, my question is if about policy, federal and state. Um, if the sexual harassment protections include all genders or transgender, or will policies need to be amended or enforced in a different way? And is that harder to enforce or prove? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, so the answer depends on who you talk to, truthfully. Um, what I would say is, so the law, um, the federal law, Title VII, prohibits um, discrimination based on sex. And um, the Supreme Court has um, read that to encompass um, same-sex relationships to a certain extent. Um, and the EEOC um, has gone a step further and has um, interpreted that law to encompass transgender individuals as well. Um, suffice to say, the current administration does not share that view. So you have the um, strange occurrence at the moment that there is pending litigation, and I, I wish I 
could give you more details. I'm going to give you the top lines, where you have the EEOC defending um, um, coverage for transgender individuals, and the Department of Justice refusing to do so. And the practical reality, and this is happening not only in the context of employment, but also obviously people are aware in the Title IX context um, in terms of um, how uh, the current administration interprets guidance, guidance that was issued during the Obama administration. And the reality is that um, some of this is going to get to the Supreme Court. Um, and it is the challenge that we've always had, you know, truthfully, even when they first started looking at sexual harassment, harassment is not mentioned in Title VII. So what the court has had to do is take both the, the letter of the law and the spirit of what those protections are supposed to be to read into them, how does this actually work um, in the current day? And so, you know, Title VII, as I said earlier, is from 1964. Um, and so that's a long way, of, a slightly long way of saying, um, you know, there is certainly opportunity in different states to be far more explicit um, and clear that sex discrimination protections, and many of these laws were done a long time ago when views about um, sex and gender were much more narrow. Um, can be very explicit, um, but the, the, the reality is that this is an open question at the national level, unfortunately. And I pointed to this gentleman and then you. Well, one thing I'm curious about is it seems like there's a, a lot of research that shows that harassment makes your employees less productive, less creative, less innovative, less everything employers need and want in employees. So in a sense, it seems like sexual harassment is kind of the low-hanging fruit if you want to increase your bottom line. Mm -hmm. So how come businesses aren't looking at it that way? Where, how do they see it differently? Um, that's such a good point. I think um, there are a couple of things going on. But I, I also would be interested in folks in the room who, who run businesses. I think the practical reality is people want the lowest common denominator. And sometimes what people want is simply to get rid of the problem. Um, you know, it's not, your point is well taken about research around harassment, but the truth of the matter is that research is already, another issue I work on that California's been a leader on is around paid leave. A whole bunch of research that shows more productive, better, all those things. Employers, by and large, to say it's too expensive, right? Like, they, they just don't believe the research, right? And so I think sometimes, rather than doing the harder work, of really trying to figure out how am I going to make this work, it is easier to do what we said earlier, which is train to the letter of the law, make sure that I'm not liable for something, and if I've got, I've got a problem, get that person out. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and in truth, we all feed into that. I tell people a story about a year ago, almost to the day, I was on the Hill with a uh, a, a general counsel who was at the National Women's Law Center, um, who's done a been leader on this space. And we were briefing folks on the Hill about sexual harassment. 
And there, at that point, was a lot of stuff happening. People have resigned, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the young people who was a staffer basically said, um, wanted to know what they could do to basically just, you know, get people to resign from, you know, who had harassed. And I, I said, you can't fire everybody. And, and one of my colleagues who was sitting next to her said to me later that the young lady said to her friend, but we can try. And so I, I chuckle about it, but it actually, it, um, uh, it, it, it responds to your point in that there is this mindset of just get rid of the problem, right? Like even people who want to do the right thing, it's about punishing the perpetrator, get that pe person away. And I think it's harder to shift to this notion that we actually just need to sort of grapple with how do we make our workplace better, right? Like it's harder. It's harder for people to talk about, you know, what if the perpetrator doesn't leave, right? Like, and I say that, you know, you can't fire everybody. Not everybody should be fired, right? It can't be that the only way that we fix the problem is to say that these people are just sort of pushed off the face. It won't happen. Right, so we need to grapple with what do you do with those problems. So that's a longer answer, but I think people, you know, em employers, I think don't believe it, and don't want to invest in the harder work of actually trying to figure out how am I going to make this work. Um, uh, and I think there was another. So I think that's part of. Uh, this young lady had a question, and I know there was a gentleman over here who had a question. Okay, um, thank you for all of the uh, insight. I wanted to go back to a couple of things that you said. Now we talked, you talked about the structural problems where we have structural inequality and the power dynamics and all of those issues that are at play. You talked about the societal issues and how do we tackle and wrestle that and then the legal framework and specifically you were saying you'd like to, to discuss potential policy kinds of solutions, and I know Senator Jackson has done some great work on policy. But what I wanted to ask was um, maybe just more of a broad question regarding policy from two perspectives. Uh, we know that given all of those three factors we're facing, that there's not like a one-size-fits-all fits all solution and there is no Band-Aid for this. Um, However, that stated, it seems as though we need to be tackling this from every front because mm -hmm. we won't change culture with one approach. We will mm -hmm. need to be doing the educational piece. We'll be, we need to be doing all of it. Mm -hmm. In that regard, um, going back to policy, I, my question is twofold. At the national level, would there, do you see merit in passing the Equal Rights Amendment and how does that help to strengthen our position um, so that we're not discriminating on the basis of sex, and this is inclusive of all gender. And then, um, taking that down to the, to the very, very local level, the, there are cities and there are counties who are passing an ordinance, a city ordinance or county ordinance based on the principles of CEDAW, which mm -hmm. is the, is the can basically an anti-discrimination ordinance or an anti-discrimination treaty at the international level that people are taking and they're t creating the, the language down to their city level and implementing it at the city level. So there, we're, 
we're talking about bolstering rights at the grassroots, and we're talking about strengthening rights at the national level. And I'm wondering about those two things collectively, your perspective on it. I know, for example, in when Miami-Dade County passed that ordinance locally, it affected things as basic as um, a, women, a woman being charged more for the same haircut that a man would be charged. So there, So I'm just wondering about pragmatically, is there, might there be merit in looking at those two angles? Um, I, I have a, a couple of a quick thoughts. Um, um, yes, but, that's my, my short answer. My longer answer is absolutely, I'm all for, um, uh, there's a lot of great work happening around the ERA. Um, you know, at the national level, there are states that are looking at a whole range of solutions. CEDAW, um, that approach is um, interesting and novel and, and certainly um, an approach I support. And I do think you are right that it helps reaffirm sort of our notions of equity and equality, and it puts people on notice that these protections are available. The, the only but that I would say um, is sort of where we started, which is that as much as I love the law and I do love the law, the law alone isn't gonna fix it, right? If the law was gonna fix it, it would have been fixed. Right, because the legal protections have been there. I think that the, when people ask me why we are still grappling with sexual harassment, I would say hands down it's because notwithstanding the law, we have not been able to crack the nut about how you change culture. We don't know how to do it. Right, like, and I, and it's hard. I'm not saying there's a magic solution, but until we crack that nut, you know, all the laws in the books aren't going to change those fundamental attitudes. Right, like they may, they may provide some protection, but at the end of the day, um, you know, even I, I want to just pick up on the one thing that people have said about young people sort of speaking up because there is more speaking up, and that's really important. But the reality is that. On the one hand, there's this enormous now speaking up. But I mean, I use this as an example, you know, Christine Blasey Ford spoke up, right? Like she spoke up after years and and she spoke up powerfully. But we gotta give people backup when they speak up, right? Like, and that's the problem, right? Like, and that's that's structural, that's that's societal to be sure, but that's also just about how you change power dynamics, right? And that is less about the legal and more about our willingness to disrupt sort of power structures that we are comfortable with. Um, and the, the last thing I will say about this is that um, when I talk about the Kavanaugh hearing, the thing that struck me is not simply that it is an example of how um, power protects powerful people. Um, it is an example of how everybody, men and women, have a vested interest in a structure, right? Like, and I say this because, you know, there are women who are terrific women who have figured out how to navigate inequitable situations and make it work for them. And unless those folks are willing to fundamentally change that structure, then it's not gonna do us much good, right? Like, and that's, that's when I look at the Senate 
That's what I see. I see a structure that is inherently flawed with some strong women who are strong, but at the end of the day, weren't willing to fundamentally change what happened. Women could have changed that, mm -hmm. right? Like even if they had voted for Kevin, they could have changed it, but they didn't, right? So to me, that's about structure. Um, so it's it's uh, that's a long answer to your question, but it's I get that question a lot because there is a focus on the ERA. I'm fully supportive of the ERA. I don't think we should be under the illusion that that'll fix the problem, not because it's not a good measure, but because the fix is something different. And this gentleman back here, yes, sir. Well, I'd, I'd like to just mention a success story, I guess you could look at it this way, about education and culture. I was given a task maybe 15 years ago or, or so of putting on for a major corporation, or an office of a major corporation, the first sexual harassment educational uh, seminar that we had for our people that were working on our office. Uh, the educational part uh, went over very well. Uh, our culture started to uh, change two days later when we got our first lawsuit that came in because we had pointed out all of the things that shouldn't be done and suddenly people realized that they had been done to them and they raised their hands. And I, I think that uh, some of the power that could be exerted uh, is shown by uh, the person who the lawsuit was levied against, when he had to write that check, his culture also had to change very quickly. That's right, right, right. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, do, I know that we, we have to wrap up. I want to, um, your comments were so uh, timely. I want to um, just make a couple of final points, um, uh, which is that, um, you know, we could spend all night talking about how you fix workplace culture. I think it's hard. Um, one thing I will say is that leadership matters, right? Like it matters if the CEO or head of the company says, this, is, this has no place. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to doing something different. And then backing it up, right? Like I think people will give lip service to stuff, but saying, you know, the tone starts at the top. And I always say that. I don't care if you're in a predominantly male, predominantly female, whatever, that matters. Um, and, and I think um, it's not to be underestimated. I don't know example of a place that has actually achieved comprehensive change where that didn't happen. Right, so I think that's really critical. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I think um, uh, to your point earlier, sometimes when you make that step forward and say, I want to do something different, the answer is that people are going to believe you. They're going to file claims, right? So the, the, the numbers may go up, and, and that doesn't that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? At least on the front end, it means that people are paying attention. It means that you're being held to a different standard. It may feel painful at the beginning, but it, it actually, at the end of the day, will be better. And so I, I also think that that's an important thing to raise, because I think um, uh, there are lots of times when people worry about that. Um, the, the last thing I, I just want to say is that um, I think there's a lot of a conversation where people always want to have the right answer. I, I think it's okay to say, I don't always know the right answer. Right? Well, these are not easy questions, and people make mistakes. And, so I, and I think we have to 
allow for people making mistakes. Otherwise, people will never come forward, right? Like, the, you want to get into a position where both women and men are your best emissaries around addressing these issues. And part of that means people being able to say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say. Right, I'm not sure what the right terminology. I don't know if this is right, or you know, you have to be able to have that sort of conversation in an environment in order to bring people along, right? Like you want, you want people who are able to say, "I used to do X, but I learned," right? Like that, that is 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 much a con, um, is as convincing as having somebody just sort of say, "Don't do that." Right, so, so I think all of that is a part of the learning that we need to do. Um, so I just wanna, I wanna thank you. Um, I will say that, you know, as I said, a lot of the solutions um, and policy ideas that people have tossed around are things that you put on the table tonight. And I think the thornier issues that we didn't quite figure out are the places where people are still trying to figure it out. Um, I, I don't think that we, um, we missed something. Um, so I thank you so much for the conversation and I you know, hope to do it again. <laughs>